Good morning from WKYT News. I'm Bill Bryant. We welcome you to Kentucky Newsmakers and certainly hope you're enjoying the weekend. Later, cautious optimism about Kentucky's COVID numbers. Dr. Crystal Miller of the Wedco District Health Department will join us a little later and we'll talk about where we go from here in the pandemic. But first, Kentucky has a major problem with affordable housing at just about every level. The Commonwealth Alliance for Housing Solutions says 21% of Kentuckians are spending more than half of their income toward housing costs. And they say even before the pandemic, Kentucky was short on housing supply by about 75,000 homes. And two years of COVID disruptions have made things worse. The Alliance is pushing a bill in the legislature that they say will help address the tough situation. Mike Hines is here from the Commonwealth Alliance for Housing Solutions. First up, thanks for coming, Mike. We appreciate it very much. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, tell us about, uh, first of all, how critical this issue is. Uh, we have a profound shortage of homes in Kentucky. We do, and we don't, we don't fully yet know how the impact of the pandemic uh, will, will affect the number that you referenced, the $75,000 uh, house shortage that we had at the beginning of the pandemic, 2019. Uh, we see it in every market in the state, uh, almost without exception. Uh, that's urban markets, suburban markets, rural markets. Uh, it's it's state to state. It's you know. And when we say at every level, we're talking about uh, rentals. We're talking about starter homes. We're talking about uh, what folks would consider to be more affordable homes for uh, medium income families. Maybe the two hundred to four thousand dollar range. There just aren't many on the market, right? Yes, sir. That's correct. And and the shortage is only getting worse. Um, what is causing all of that? Uh, a lot of factors. Uh, so we have rising construction costs, uh, particularly here in Fayette County, there's not much land to build upon. Uh, and those two factors alone are causing tightness in the market. Uh, also land that you're allowed to build on, right? Yes, yeah, sir. Right, yes, yeah, sir. Yeah. Uh, and then with the COVID pandemic, you saw reduced turnover. So there was not as many people who were moving, uh, which reduced inventory on the market even further. And that condition, that trend really hasn't changed yet. Uh, we haven't really seen a lot of velocity in the real estate markets as a, as a whole, in my opinion. Uh, so that, that's causing, that's exacerbating the issue. And it takes a while to build, uh, always has, but at this point uh, with the disrupted uh, supply chain, uh, it, it can be a, a very long construction period, right? Yes, yeah, so construction periods have been stretched by four to six months in most cases uh, by the supply chain issue. Uh, and there's uh, some national forecasts that don't think that that will be alleviated till 2023. Your report says that more than a fifth of Kentuckians are spending about half of their income on housing. Mm -hmm. That has to be a very difficult situation. It is, it is. Uh, housing insecurity, uh, particularly amongst um, working families, uh, it does not contribute towards uh, educational success for children does not contribute towards good positive health outcomes for adults and children. So it, it is a very stressful situation. It also does, you know, when we think about economic development, it does reach the attention of employers who are looking to come to, to Kentucky. We have a great state. We have a lot of economic momentum, but housing is a piece of infrastructure that we've not adequately addressed. You know, commercial or industrial development areas seem to be able to go in. They pass through the local governments and are able to come in, and then at times they are induced to come in by mm. some incentives that are offered by the governments. You're now saying that we're at a point where 
housing developers need some of that as well. Correct. Uh, so what House Bill 86 would propose to do would be to create a state-based uh, tax incentive program that would allow for the construction of housing even with our elevated costs, but with a controlled rent that would be affordable in the communities in which that housing was built. And we think that's very important um, because we have seen such rental increases, particularly in our urban markets, but really all over the state. And that, that ability to kind of control rents through the, through the program really would make a difference over the long term as far as workforce housing goes. This means if the developer takes the incentive from the state government, they would guarantee a, a rent for, for, for the renters, right, at a certain level? Yes, for 30 years. Tell us more about how, uh, yeah. how this, uh, this would work. Well, just to speak about Lexington in particular, uh, so under the, the proposed legislation, um, for a family of four who earned anything less than $45,300 per year, they would be eligible to live in the housing and the rent would be calculated to be approximately 30% of that uh, imputed income level. So it, it ensures that that housing is affordable to that family for the long term and stays affordable for the 30-year period. So once the housing is constructed, that inventory is always available, it's always in the market, it's always there. Full disclosure, you uh, work for uh, a company, uh, oversee a company that does rental properties yes, yes, uh, primarily, uh, and asking one of the questions that maybe some of the lawmakers might, do you foresee that people would stay in those rental properties for uh, for that 30 years or for the duration, or uh, would that be an opportunity for them to have a home and maybe save up and take the next step? It's a sum of both. So my company has been in existence, my, my day job, if you will, has been in existence for over 40 years. We have residents who have lived in some of our properties for almost all of that period. And so there is some truth to that. Uh, but we also see a lot of people who are in our housing for a few years do save up the, the money for a down payment or other housing, provide for other housing, and take that step. So it's, it's, a, it's a positive uh, influence in the market and to that individual or that family from either perspective. How significant uh, is this for a builder uh, in terms of being more likely that they would be able to, to go ahead and, and turn ground and, and start projects? Uh, it's very significant, uh, particularly if you want to target uh, an affordable rent when you are c completed with the building. Um, the, the House Bill 86, the State Housing Tax Credit, uh, would allow for equity to be invested into these developments, and that equity lets us have lower debt and operating costs on those developments, so our rents don't have to be nearly as high to support the cost of construction. Plus, with the capped rents, you know, which is something that we pledge uh, when we interact with the state agency responsible for this, uh, that stays in place for the long term. If this doesn't work at the state level, could it work at a local level? Could, could Lexington, Louisville, some of the other larger cities in Kentucky partner with some of the developers and, and, and assist them in projects like that? Well, uh, you know, Lexington has already been a leader on that. Uh, Lexington has a, a local housing trust fund that's been in effect, I think, for at least 10 years, maybe longer. And that local housing trust fund uh, really led the way for Louisville to, to then pass similar legislation at the local level. And so, you know, Lexington really did lead that um, in our state very early on. Uh, but yes, the answer is yes. Local municipalities can participate and can provide incentives 
that would assist with closing the cost gap to build affordable housing. Do builders and developers have uh, much of a, a margin to work on uh, in the situation we're in right now? I mean, it, you know, people see the prices have skyrocketed and they assume somebody's making a lot of money on that. Uh, well, I, I'm not sure who that is. It's, it, uh, so the material cost increases that we've seen over the last 12 to 18 months are, uh, for your typical construction, are at least 21%, according to the national home builders. In some local markets, that can be even higher, uh, depending on the nature of the local market and shipping conditions and things like that. So when you have cost increases of that nature and you have uh, a supply shortage, which we do, a, a supply-demand imbalance um, that's fairly significant, you know, the, the pressure for a builder to be competitive or a developer to be competitive is actually very high. It doesn't reduce that pressure. It, it, it actually increases it. You, you, if you're building, um, if you're building a, a building and, and you can't attract enough qualified people to live in your building, that's a real risk to the developer and the builder. So if, if a lot of that is made up of profit or margin, at this point, in, in my estimation, you're taking a risk, a pretty significant risk. Do you, at this point, have wait lists for, for your properties? We do. We have uh, pretty significant wait lists all, um, for most of our properties. Um, and, and one of the things that I think really highlights that, we have a footprint in western Kentucky as well. And when we had the recent storms in December, um, we and a group of other housing providers, you know, wanted to reach out and help folks. I mean, there were folks in Dawson Springs that the closest property I could get them into would have been in Evansville, Indiana. We just don't have any availability. Uh, our portfolio occupancy rate in my company uh, is in excess of 98%. Everything's full. There's nowhere for people to go. What has been the reception uh, so far uh, in the legislature? I, I, I took a look at the bill and I, I don't see that it has, has moved. Uh, is it hard to get attention in this session with uh, so many other things uh, under discussion? Well, uh, one, I think the job of a legislator is uh, very difficult. Um, and, you know, fortunately under the leadership of our two bill sponsors, Representative Bridges and Representative Banta, uh, they have been successful in helping us generate attention to the bill and we are getting attention from House leadership and others, and we hope that that momentum will continue. I do think that there is increasing awareness, regardless of the home district for the legislator, that this isn't just an issue that is somewhere else. This is an issue that is right here at home, right there in their district. This is a, a tax break for the, for, the, uh, for the home builders, and uh, it would mean less revenue for the state, I'm sure you're, you will hear that as pushback as well. Yes, sir. It, it, it does. It is, it is, uh, that is how the program works. Um, but the, the revenue to the builder is also capped, or the developer is also capped by virtue of the rent restrictions. So there is a, a trade-off that a builder or developer makes to take advantage of this incentive. The incentive is a pay-for-performance for, for program. So if, if at any point in time the builder or the developer does not serve the families that they're supposed to serve, the incentive stops and the bill to the state stops immediately. And that is the benefit of what, I, what is known as a tax expenditure over a direct spending uh, methodology and that that expenditure can be cut off at any point in time. Mike, as we, as we look at this problem, uh, you know, macro, you look down at the, at the entire housing shortage issue that we have, and it's nationwide, but mm -hmm. it is very critical here in Kentucky. Uh, what's the way forward to, to, to get out of this? 
at, at every level. Well, it's so it, you know, it's a supply-demand imbalance at its basic, at its basic level. So, you know, even if we build rental housing in a community, it helps the all levels of the market. If we if we build senior housing, and half of our residents live in single-family homes, when they move into our building, those single-family homes become available to the market for other people to purchase for housing to be made available throughout the market. There is a ripple effect. But the answer is that we need to invest in housing and we need to build it and we need to treat it as infrastructure. Uh, I think that that's critical. Without housing, I, I would challenge, without stable housing, I would challenge anybody to let me know an area of an individual's life that isn't infected by that. Uh, are you optimistic about uh, getting this passed? Well, I, I am an, uh, an endless opti optimist, uh, so yes, I, I think we will be there this year, I hope. Mike Hines with the uh, Commonwealth Alliance for Housing Solutions. We appreciate you coming in. Well, thank you very All much right. for having me. Hope you'll stay with us. We're coming right back in just a moment. Dr. Crystal Miller will join us from the WEDCO uh, Health Department as she's talking about the encouraging numbers we're finally seeing in the COVID pandemic. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to Kentucky Newsmakers. Finally, some encouraging news on the COVID front. It appears we are past the peak of the Omicron surge and the numbers are going down. And with the optimism about that, of course, comes caution about continuing to do what you can to protect yourself from the virus that is still very much out there. Still, there is strong hope that this downturn in the numbers will mean that hospitals, schools, businesses, and entire communities will at least find it more manageable. Dr. Crystal Miller is the public health director for the Wedco Health Department. It serves Scott, Bourbon, Harrison, and Nicholas counties. Dr. Miller, welcome. We appreciate it very much. Yeah, thanks for having me. We've seen these case numbers and the, and the positivity rate go down the last couple of weeks. It has been uh, very good to see that. Is there reason to be optimistic that we are getting finally this Omicron surge behind us? Yeah, hope is a big thing, isn't it? We, we've learned that through this pandemic, that we hang on to hope, and um, we are seeing that. And I am optimistic that um, we have, for about two weeks now, continued to see our incidence rate drop dramatically. Um, our hospitalizations, which is something we pay very close attention to, um, they have dropped dramatically as well. And so we are very hopeful that we're on the downhill swing for this. You know, as we refer to uh, cautious optimism, uh, could we get into another spike even of this surge if we let our guards down too soon? Yeah, you know, the, the concern for us is we know the four things that work. Vaccines are our number one protector against that, and, and unfortunately, we don't have the level of vaccination rates that we need. Um, and so for that reason, we're always concerned about new variants. We're always concerned about surges. Um, but, you know, as much information and misinformation and confusion that people are experiencing because we get our news from a lot of places and um, things happen, you know, within our world very quickly, uh, there's so much guidance out here. I've learned um, over the, the past couple of years that people are oversaturated with information, but you know, we try to keep it very simple. The four things remain very, um, they are the staples for how we fight communicable disease. And that has been tried and true since March 2020. And that is get your vaccinations, wash your hands, socially distance and wear a mask. And so, um, you know, if people will continue to do that, um, you know, then that's the best foot forward we can put, right? 
Dr. Miller, some school districts in your region and in others are planning to lift mask requirements this month, and I know it's, uh, it's controversial uh, both ways. Does public health guidance indicate that uh, it will be okay to do that? Yeah, so, you know, it's it's a balancing act of watching, um, you know, and, and we know that it's it's basically at what point, you know, do you pull the, do you rip the Band-Aid off, right? And and we have watched the data, um, the superintendents and myself, and I know other local health officials and their superintendents have very close relationships, and we talk um, sometimes daily, if not weekly, about the data and what we're looking at. Um, and for us in our region, for Scott and Harrison, Nicholas counties, we, our incidents rate has dropped 20 points daily for the about the past two and a half weeks and so if you trend that out um, you know we're gonna we're gonna be looking if, if numbers and and our incidence rate continues to drop that the, the way that it is now we will be in a very good position um, to support that and so you know it, it, you have to make that call at some point, right? And we know that it's very frustrating for parents and families who who want, um, who feel like, you know, masks need to come off. And we also know it's very scary for those who um, have experienced, who have negative health um, implications from viruses, et cetera. You know, there's a lot of things to consider here. And so um, we are balancing those. We have promised our communities that we would watch the data and when the data supported um, that we would do that. And that's exactly what we're doing. Dr. Miller, is, uh, you know, and based on your own expertise and now experience of a couple of years of dealing with this and uh, the guidance that you're getting on the state and from the federal level, is COVID something that we're just going to be dealing with in, in waves like this uh, for a long period of time? Or is this maybe the light at the end of the tunnel once we get through this uh, particular uh, uh, strain that has come through? Yeah, absolutely. Well, we're all hopeful that it'll just go away, right? Um, but with you know what we know about viruses and what we know with with vaccines, we ha we need vaccination rates higher. We really, really do in order to fight additional strains and and to fight back on having surges. And so, you know, ideally, what we know, what we can look back um, historically, what we know is that we will have new variants, and what they do will depend, you know, on a lot of factors. But um, where we are now. Very very hopeful. If you would have asked me this three weeks ago, I, you know, we would have been having a very different conversation. And so, um, I am very pleased with where we are with our hospitalizations, with the fact that our incidence rate is dropping uh, by 20 points daily. And so, I, I think we are definitely headed in the right direction. Will we? I get asked that a lot. Will we um, deal with this much like we deal with the flu? You know, that's what that's what we're looking at right now. You know, we we've seen we have a you know first and second dose, or you have you know one for J and J and then a booster, and so you know the data will drive that as parents start to uh, eye spring break or even uh, summer and maybe think about uh, taking uh, vacations or, or in having more activities do you believe we're headed toward a more normal scenario uh, for those times right so viruses historically have um, been they respond differently to heat and cold and the, and um, this pandemic has not seemed to trend in that direction so I am hopeful that we're headed in that direction but this has been a this virus has been um, just 
really um, unpredictable in every way. Cold didn't seem to matter. Heat, did, you know, didn't seem to matter. And so if that's the case, then, you know, it's very unpredictable. But um, holding on to hope and making sure that we're doing the four things that really, really are tried and true to fighting communicable disease um, will help us all. So I can't stress enough that we need our communities to get vaccinated. We need people to continue to wear masks when you're in um, large settings, you know, wash your hands and then socially distance. So keeping those four things things as much as much guidance is out here if you can remember those four things that will really serve you well you know all of a sudden public health popped onto the obvious scene it's obviously an ongoing but over the last couple of years uh, this has been uh, uh, certainly a test for the system hasn't it Oh, absolutely. We have learned a lot. Um, one of the blessings, I have talked about this on, I think, on your segment before, but I, you know, one of the blessings in this pandemic is that people understand now how important local health departments are um, in supporting communicable disease. And that's not just with a pandemic, that's with, you know, HIV, hepatitis C. We are responsible for a myriad of communicable diseases. And so I'm really thankful that our communities now understand the importance of that a little better. Um, but the local, you know, local and state um, public health infrastructure is, is I think our public, I think our communities have seen that we have been underfunded. We need a lot of work in our infrastructure with systems and processes um, just, just from keeping up with the day to day, you know, back March, 2020, we were building out our systems to track our data through Excel sheets and other things uh, because we just didn't have a system that supported moving that fast. Do you have concerns that uh, other health screenings have been neglected during COVID? We know that in the beginning um, of the pandemic, we know people were scared and they were not seeking out medical care for what they needed. I think we've changed that landscape just a bit uh, where you know people have, have relaxed that a bit. But um, I definitely think that we have some work to do, particularly you know, with um, our substance abuse and mental health areas. I think that the pandemic has really heightened um, our need for that and our awareness around the need for that. And yet we know the opioid addiction problem has not only continued, but apparently has worsened during the pandemic. Are we uh, properly positioning now to turn that trend around? Absolutely. So I can tell you one of the things that we um, have been able to do as the pandemic, um, as, as we have slowed down our cases is we we are focusing our efforts on outreach more for we do HIV and hepatitis C um, testing community outreach testing um, for our district and every local health department obviously is responsible for communicable diseases um, and so that has been um, really well received in our communities that is something that we will continue to build on these relationships that we've built through the pandemic to make sure that we're staying on top of all the things that are related to communicable disease and the spread of disease and what that looks like in our communities. Public Health Director Dr. Crystal Miller, we appreciate you being with us uh, today. And, uh, and as uh, you said, uh, uh, hope springs eternal that uh, we, maybe some of this will get behind us and you can uh, focus on some other goals out there, right? Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it very much. Stay with us now. We'll be back on WKYT's Kentucky Newsmakers. Welcome back to Kentucky Newsmakers. A major international security meeting. Hundreds of officials from dozens of countries are taking part. Russia's growing military is a key focus, but the Iranian threat is also on the agenda. Our chief national political analyst, Greta Van Susteren, has the details. 
Hello, I'm Greta Van Susteren, and here is your Full Court Fast Break. This weekend, Vice President Kamala Harris leading a U.S. delegation to the Munich Security Conference. The VP giving a speech on U.S. policy towards Ukraine and meeting with European leaders, reassuring them of the U.S. commitment to NATO. This as Russia continues to advance toward Ukraine's border, fueling fears of an invasion. At the Munich conference, world leaders also certain to discuss Iran's nuclear program. Experts warning Tehran is weeks away from having enough nuclear material for a nuclear bomb. Iran is currently enriching uranium to 60% purity. Weapons grade is around 90% purity. And this week, efforts to revive the 2015 nuclear deal hitting a roadblock. Should we be worried? I spoke to Senate Intel Chair Senator Mark Warner. Clearly, Iran has made progress in terms of uranium enrichment. But one of the things that I don't think the public understands enough is even should you get enough uranium enrichment, you also then need to develop and build a weapon. That has been estimated to take a year to a year and a half. You then have to have a delivery mechanism as well. With the clock ticking, the West is eager to reach a new agreement. But Iran is demanding all sanctions against it be lifted. Iran also wants assurances that the U.S. won't go back on its word if a new agreement is reached. As you know, in 2018, former President Donald Trump pulled the U.S. out of the nuclear agreement. Want more Full Court Press? Tune in Sundays. We bring politics home covering the national stories that impact you. Remember, you can catch Full Court Press with Greta Van Susteren coming up this morning at 1130 on WKYT. State legislature will be taking off Monday for President's Day. It is not a state holiday, so state offices will be open. However, it is a federal holiday and it is a city holiday in Lexington. So uh, you might want to check ahead if you have uh, to do any business with government uh, on Monday. And no U.S. mail, regular delivery on Monday as well. That's Kentucky Newsmakers. We do thank you for joining us and we hope you make it a good week ahead.